Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Jared Jones. He is the head chaplain at the Holy Trinity Episcopal Academy in Melbourne, Florida. I give you Jared Jones. Jared, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. So our this is the second Sunday in Lent, and our first reading is from Genesis, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 4. And we have this command by the Lord to go from Abraham's country and his kindred and his father's house to the place he's going to show, and he'll make a great nation of him and make his name great. So it's kind of a foundational... I mean, it's interesting because... Oftentimes, I, I get the Old Testament tells stories of like new Adams or second Adams, right? right. And so it, Jesus is obviously the ultimate second Adam, is, is the antitype of all the types. But this, you know, that's you know, whenever you have these redemptive fi- figures like Abraham or David, they're often new, you know, it's a new kind of it's a redoing of Adam, it's a redoing of you know, it's it's the call of Abraham as the solution to the problem of Adam. So here we right. have the beginning, kind of the early story of this one who it's interesting too because Joshua says. Right, the beginning of Joshua that says, you know, think about your ancestors who lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. And he's talking about Abraham, it seems, right, right, right. beyond the Euphrates. So it's it's interesting. It's like creation from nothing. And you have this Adam, you have Abraham and Sarah who are, you, no one would look at them as the new Adam and Eve because they're childless and they're worshipping other gods. And yet they become this new, again, a, 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 a prototype of the new humanity here. And, right, yeah. Um, I, I think it's... I always view Genesis. Genesis is basically broken down into you know Genesis one through eleven is kind of a prologue, um, and then twelve through fifty is um, is is the story of the you know patriarchs. Uh, and, and so I, I think what's interesting there is like you know really Genesis twelve is when the real narrative of uh, of of the Bible gets started. You know, you know, Genesis one through eleven is is really, really, really important. I mean, it's kind of like at the beginning of Lord of the Rings, the movies, where they have that long, you know, fifteen yeah. minute prologue of like what happened with the ring and a seal door. You know, but when they zoom in on the Shire and Frodo in the Shire, that's when the story is really getting started. Um, and so Genesis twelve, like you know, the very beginning of the story. Uh, of scripture with all the background of what happened with Adam. And um, if you can hear my daughter in the background, that's because uh, my one week old daughter is currently in my arms. But, um, you know, uh, the, the first, the first thing that happens is that God elects gr- gratuitously, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, it, it, the first event of the narrative that will carry on throughout the rest of scripture is an act of grace. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because the Bible, it's like, it starts cosmic and ends cosmic like genesis 1 through 11 we're talking about all the nations the beginning of humanity the the flood and then it gets really particular right and then you know and then then it continues in that particularity and then but it kind of concludes with new heaven and new earth it it, it gets like you know wide angle right so zoom angle wide angle is the table uh is um uh the table of nations i think right um yeah and and you know, right after that was right before that was the the Tower of Babel. 
so you have these huge cosmic, you know, universal scope things happening. Um, and then this particular promise or this particular conversation that God begins with this particular person who is by all accounts, a pagan, just like every other pagan, um, that God simply chooses just out of his own, um, you know, his own, I guess, uh, you know, in my reformed circle, I would say decree, uh, but his, his own free decision to do so. Right. Um, and even in, in what God promises Abraham here, you have this universal particularity. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless you. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So he's almost promising that through this particularity, the universal, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to what we just left in Genesis 1 through 11. It was interesting. When, like years ago, I was asked to give a talk at this. It was like the Senior Citizen Center in Jersey, and they wanted to had a rabbi, a Muslim guy who was not an imam, who was a layman, but and and me talk about Abraham and our traditions. And both of them were sort of like, you know, the Jewish guy was like, he was like a reformer. He's like, Abraham was a mensch, and God needed a mensch to bless the world. And the Muslim guy was basically, you know, the, the Islamic tradition is Abraham kind of gets run out of. Uh, uh, or, or the Chaldeans because he's smashing idols and things like this. So I was like, kind of, yeah, I don't really see it this way. <laughs> like, it was this kind of like idealizing of Abraham, and I was like, really, that I think the Bible doesn't really paint that picture. It, it right. paints him as dead, <laughs> like, right. and and kind of not going anywhere. I mean, the, right. you know, they the, they're not going to have children. They're in or the Chaldeans, the center of lunar worship. This is not the spark of, 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 of the redemptive story of the universe at all. Right. Yeah. I was just at a lecture a couple of weeks ago from a Harvard um, professor of Jewish studies who, who talked about this idea. He, he phrased this part of the lecture. Why did, why did the, why did God, uh, why did Yahweh fall in love with Israel? Um, and really what he was asking is why did God choose Abraham? And he really, he had, he kind of got to, this is, it's just a act of gracious election. You know, yeah. there's no, there's no reason for it. You know, and that's, it's, it's, um, God even says so later, um, in the Torah when he, he says, um, I did not choose you. I can't remember the passage off the top of my head right that's now. That's interesting. If I were to choose one of the great people, I could have chosen. Yeah. Like, yeah. I did not choose you because you were great. You were, right. you were small. And, um, and in fact, it's because you were small that I chose you. You know, and and Paul picks that up in First Corinthians. If it's God chooses the weak to to shame the strong, you know, and um, that that um, that God's election and God's activity is always um, uh, free from from His end um, and towards those who we might not think that God would. I mean, think about it. At the time, you know, you would have had the um, uh, there was there were some you know the in the ancient Near East they were beginning to. Um, coalesce into bigger kingdoms, you know, the, the kind of empires were going to come up in a couple hundred years, but, um, there were other options, right? You know, yeah, like, yeah. uh, then a barren man, um, uh, you know, with nothing, um, and just telling him go leave. Yeah. And it's interesting that like the things it's like concentric circles go from your country and then it gets closer to your kindred. Like the like your clan, your and then from your father's house. So it's this. He's got he's got to leave all these things that are so defining for him in the ancient Near East and, for identity and security. And that's part of like the gracious call is also disruptive. Like he's got to kind of find his 
trust and 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 center in God and God's call, like not not in the kind of things that would normally make you feel connected and secure and important. Yeah, and I can't remember if it's this passage or in Genesis 15, but you know, one of them is it's very clear that God is basically adopting Abraham. Um, it might be in Genesis 15 when he says. Um, uh, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Where, where, um, he is, he, he, God, but, but I think, but I think it's connected to this passage too, where God is saying, I am linking myself to you to say that whatever happens to you, I will deal with accordingly. Yeah. And so yeah. he's saying, leave your kindred. I think it is actually Genesis 12. He's saying, leave your kindred and, and I will, you'll have a new father. Yeah. You know, I will be your father. I will be the one who will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and defend you and be your shield and be your progeny and, you know, all those things. Yeah, and that's stuff Abraham have to learn. I mean, it's funny, the first thing Abraham says back to God in Genesis 15 is doubt. Right. Well, right. just make Eliezer my heir. You know, like, so it, it's a process for Abraham to learn to live into the call of God and the, and the gracious call of God and to trust that, like it is for all of us. Right. On to Romans chapter 4, um, 1 through 5, then 13 through 17. We have this uh, passage where Paul is talking about, is there an advantage by, you know, having ans- having Abraham or ancestor according to the flesh? And, you know, he, how Paul's basically saying he's got nothing to boast about uh, before God. Abraham uh, just trusted God. He didn't have any traditional religious works or, you know, there's no Torah, there's no circumcision. And it seems that, you know, he's saying that this... You know, the fact that Abraham came this way shows that all of the children of God are children by faith, uh, which, I mean, it's interesting because I just read Scott McKnight's book last year, re- Reading Romans Backwards, where he thinks that it all starts with the, the whole str- strong and the weak parties, right? And the, you know, Paul is sympathetic to the strong because the strong are saying, hey, you know, food, Torah, these things are relative. And the weak are, are people that are Paul's sympathetic to because, you know, he wants to unite these two parties. But the weak are the ones that are saying, hey, you've got to have Jewish observance and Torah observance to really be in Christ. And so it's interesting, McKnight, you know, puts into context why you're talking about Abraham this way, because it's kind of an argument over against the one he calls the judge, the weak, who are kind of judging the Gentile believers. And he's kind of saying, no, look at Abraham. <laughs> he doesn't, right. he wouldn't, the father of our, of our faith wouldn't count for your argument here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, the, uh, you know, the, like he is, he is, Paul is certainly, um, pointing back to the, primacy of a righteousness that comes by faith and not by um obedience to the law and um i think it was i think luther um looked at um you know the idea that in uh um i think it's in psalm 51 um that that uh psalm 51 4 so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment that that what god is is um what God is after is for someone um, to trust, to uh, someone to take him at his word. Um, and that when you take God at his word, what you're saying is that God, you're, you're saying a lot by doing that. You're, you're saying that God is true, um, that he is righteous, 
um, that he is, um, that he does not lie. Um, and so to trust a promise is actually a really big deal. Uh, I, I, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is I think sometimes people give this knock on, um, Protestant Christian theology, you know, Protestant theology of like, well, it's this easy, easy believism, um, easy, uh, well, it's too easy. Um, well, how easy is it to trust a promise of a God you don't know? Yeah. You know, Abraham, he, he had, Abraham has no idea who this God is other than this, this God starts speaking to him. Um, and what a miracle it is that Abraham trusts him. You know, what, what, what on earth, what reason does Abraham have to trust this God who has yet to give him an heir? He just has made some promises. Like, you know, the, it's easy to make promises. Um, I can make, you know, I can make promises all day. It doesn't mean I'm going to follow through them. But if someone believes me, um, it's because they believe that I'm actually going, I'm actually able to, to stick to those promises and willing to and good. I mean, that I'm, that I'm actually good, you know, so to, to trust for us to trust the promise of Christ that in spite of ourselves and in spite of our weakness and in spite of, um, just, I don't know, in spite of the way I look at, if I look in the mirror, in spite of what I see, that Christ has redeemed this person. Um, and to trust that, I mean, that's a miracle. Yeah, it's interesting, too. I love the conclusion of this passage where he says, you know, that it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, both the Jewish believers and the, and the Gentile believers here. And he says, you know, that I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So I think Paul's saying that that's true of, of, of both parties here that he's writing to, both the, both the ones who are identi- who identify you know, as Jews and are, and are believers in Jesus, and the ones who are Gentile believers in Jesus, that both what they have in common through faith is that they're in this tradition of the one who give le- gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, just like he did with Abraham, just like, you know, it's... Right. Just like he create, he calls creation to being out of nothingness. So he calls, you know, every uh, believer is is an act of 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 the same kind of thing from calling something into being from nothingness. Yeah, and um, I love the uh, of the on the you know the um, this is an obscure reference, but um, the ten theses of Burn, um, the very first one um, is. Uh, uh, I can't. The, the, uh, of the ten theses of burn, the first one basically says something along the lines of, um, "The church is a creature of the word of God. Um, mm-hmm. The the church is born of the word of God, and that um, it in it 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 has its its being, um, and it does not listen to the voice of a stranger. And this idea that like you are a being who is called out of nothing, and in it's in God's word that we have our well, it's in God's word that we have, we live and move and have our being, right? That, that, um, that our, our very selves are made up of, of we have received a promise. And that is that in, in our baptism, that Christ has, has bought us, has, has taken us. Um, and we trust that. And, and when we do, we're made up into new creatures that live based on this word of God. Yeah, and I think that the biggest thing, temptation for ever for many of us in in our lives is it, first off, we don't want to believe in the nothingness, right? Uh, because we're afraid that we're nothing in the worst sense of the word. You know, we're not a good enough parent or child or student or right. 
professional or this or that. And so we try to paper over that. We try to make like we're anything but nothingness, right? Right. And we try to sort of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to get a sense of somethingness, which subverts the whole beauty of the mystery, right? It's because because it's in this nothingness that you do find a somethingness that's rooted not in yourself, but in something real and, and true and lasting. I think mean, that's the I mean that's the perennial challenge to like lean to to lean to to believe and trust in the in the something from nothingness. Because I gotta have faith. On to the gospel reading, we have John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Nicodemus and Jesus here, uh, with this Nicodemus coming to him by night and um, saying, you know, Jesus, it seems like you know some things here, but I don't know. And Jesus says, you know, you're the teacher of Israel. Don't you know these things? And, um, you know, he seemed, Nicodemus seems to not get, you know, what Jesus is talking about, being, being born again and through the Spirit. And then we get eventually John 3.16, probably one of the famous most famous verses in, in the New Testament that we see at many sporting events. Um, and, you know, for good reason. Uh, it's easy to, to uh, you know, crap on the people at the sporting events. But look, if you're going to show a verse, um, that's probably the one to show, you know? If you're going to go to a sporting event and have a verse. It's uh, interesting. I, always, I often wonder why they don't choose John 3.17. Indeed, God did not send the, world into, the Son of the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Uh, you know? There you go. Could choose either. Hey, didn't that guy end up like killing somebody? Who? The John 316 guy. I don't know. I assume there are many John 316 guys. I thought there was one guy that used to go to a bunch and then he ended up like killing, murdering somebody. Um, It it is interesting. They get it in, 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 Dale Bruner's commentary on John, which I love, uh, he has this great little section where he he breaks down John 316. He says, God, the greatest subject ever, so much, the greatest extent ever, loved the greatest affection ever, the world, the greatest object ever, that he gave his one and only son the greatest gift ever, so that every single individual, whoever, the greatest opportunity ever, who is simply entrusting oneself to him, the greatest commitment ever, would never be destroyed, the greatest rescue ever, but would even now have a deep, lasting life, the greatest promise ever. It's just all these great, like little greatest in this. Uh, I thought, wow, it's so interesting. Like, just like look at that, you know, look at that verse that way. Yeah, um, I love this passage because uh, one, I think, you know, one one of the th- one of the interesting things about John to me is um, it's it's got a lot more like personal encounters that Jesus has. Um, it, it's almost as if like John, um, you know. I like to imagine that John like almost had the others and I don't know about receptive history and all that. So just any of you scholars out there just shut up for a second, but um, (laughs) it's almost as if, if John knew the synoptic gospels and just said like, okay, these are great, you know, fine. Let me tell you some of the stories that I knew of that, that, that aren't, they didn't make public, public, you know, no one knew about, you know, people maybe knew about the feeding of 5,000. There were people that were there and, you know, they could testify to it and all that. But, you know, he's telling these stories that, um, which also wonder like, where, who did he hear this story from? It had, it was probably from Nicodemus, right? It was interesting. It's interesting because, you know, but do you think Jesus told him the story? Benedict the 16th argues that like, in his books on Jesus and Nazareth, he argues that like, Contra this idea that John is for the Gentile gospel and stuff. He's like, well, then why would he have three trips to Jerusalem? Right. You know, it would be so temple-centered. He says it's a temple-centered gospel. And he argues that, like, he, he's working off German critics and stuff. That are, there was a Zebedee family connected to the temple. And why is the disciple that Jesus loved able to get access into the temple? Like, 
with Peter and they knew the disciples. So he argues kind of that the reason John's gospel is different is because it, it's centered more on the, the temple and religious controversies uh, in, a, in a different, more detailed way than the synoptics are, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Like, like way to account for why it's different. Um, right. Well, and I, and I love that this is probably a story that Nicodemus told John later, because it, for all we know, it's just him and Jesus talking. Um, and I love that Nicodemus shows up, can will only meet with Jesus at night um, because a public meeting would be too uh, risky. You know? Yeah. Uh, and he approaches him because he has genuine questions, but he's not willing to like publicly, you know, commit to anything. Um, and uh, kind of connecting it to the other passages. I love that what Jesus demands of him is, is, is um, to be created again, you know, to yeah. be, to be born again, to be, um, you know, and, and, you know, we, uh, you know, the, even the idea of being born, um, the mystery of, of, you know, we just had a baby in, in my life. Um, and you're just always reminded of like this, it, it, not to get, um, graphic, but it seems like this baby comes out of nothing. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, you know, it just, uh, um, and, and to be born again is something that you can't do on your own. You can't force yourself to do it. You can't, um, it's not something that you're going to learn that's going to cause it. It's, it's something that the spirit is going to do to you. Um, so you are a passive and a, and a baby is a very passive recipient in birth, right? Um, it is literally, uh, forced against its will to be born. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause, um, Bruner also in his commentary says that, you know, he's, he's, he's asking what are these heavenly and earthly things, which Jesus contrasts and he quotes Luther and some other people as like different, um, ways to like see this and he says well the most helpful thing he ever found was from boltmont and he said uh for boltmont the earthly things to which jesus refers indicate the meaningless situation of man only by seeing himself in this critical way can man gain the prior understanding which is necessary in order to understand the saving revelation we can paraphrase as follows boltmont concludes if a man cannot see the necessity of rebirth he will also be unable to see that in Jesus rebirth has become possible. Mm. Following the earthly this earthly teaching, it is the mission of Jesus, his descent from heaven and his return, which is seen as the Uperania, heavenly things. Uh, how does a human being come to God? Verses thirteen to twenty one address the question from the other end. How does the salvation of God come to a human being? Uh, with our verse twelve's earthly things, heavenly things, throwing a bridge between the two questions. That's really interesting. Uh, this way of like needing to see your need for rebirth in order to see that rebirth can happen through Christ. You need to kind of come to the, re the, the realization revelation that, yeah, that you are from nothing <laughs> to dust. You have from dust. You've come into dust. You shall return. You know? Yeah. And I think if anything, um, you know, one of the things that people hopefully experience in Lent is not um, a time of personal, um, uh, strength in the oh i was able to give up chocolate right or, this is my know. 40 days of religious athleticism yeah it's it, it's it should be a time of of getting you to a place of of i need to be born i need to be born again i need to be uh something needs to happen if 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 it's just up to me i'm not going to be able to do what is required because i need a new heart i need a new um I, you know i i need i need to be new and the promise of of good friday and the promise of easter is that is that God makes new things out of out of the old, and and God makes new things out of nothing. Yeah, Eugene Peterson says that Christian discipleship is focusing more and more on Christ's righteousness and less and less on your own. Mm. 
And I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Thanks for doing this, Jared. And no uh, blessed Lent to you. You as well. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Jared for coming on the podcast. And thanks to you for listening to Synaxis this week. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.